Our scripture this morning comes from uh, Genesis 3. It's the whole chapter, um, and I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, Remember that hearing God's word and listening to God's word is an act of worship, and I know this is a familiar story to uh, most of us, but it's, it's important for us to have the whole in our mind as we reflect. And so uh, in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree, the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the fruit was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me to, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And, Adam said to, and, and, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat till you return to the ground. For from it you are taken, and for you are dust, to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God set, set him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove, him out, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Lord, we pray you meet us today in your word um, preached, and you instruct us about how we relate to you in your presence. 
um, meet us where we're at and encourage us and challenge us and draw us closer to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There is an old uh, spiritual classic uh, written by Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection named Practicing the Presence of God. Some of you may know this book. And in that book, Brother Lawrence makes the case that the whole of the spiritual life can be summarized and understood as a practicing of God's presence. And what he says about that is how he describes that. Uh, He says that the holiest, the most common, the most necessary practice in the spiritual life is the presence of God. That is to take delight in and be accustomed to his divine company, speaking humbly and talking lovingly with him at all times, at every moment, without rule or system, and especially in times of temptation and suffering and even unfaithfulness and sin. We must continually work hard so that each of our actions is a way of carrying relations with God. In a carefully prepared way, but as it comes from the purity and simplicity of the heart. Now what Adam and Eve possessed in the garden before the fall is the kind of relationship that Brother Lawrence uh, aspires to. He wants to have constant contact, constant unbroken connection with God. And that is what Adam and Eve had in the garden. In the garden, they didn't have to practice the presence of God. They didn't have to work at being in God's presence. They lived all of their lives in the unbroken, immediate presence of God. When God created the heavens and the earth, as we discussed a number of weeks back, that he creates all of creation as like a cosmic temple in which at the end he rests in that temple. When God creates the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden is like a holy of holies within the cosmic temple of creation. And at the very center of this garden, God puts the man and the woman as priests to work it and to keep it. That is their priestly uh, work, to work and to keep the garden. Adam and Eve um, enjoyed face-to-face presence with God. It says that God walked in the cool of the day. God engages them in conversation. They enjoyed a perfect relationship with God, his immediate presence. There wasn't any go-betweens. There wasn't any restricted access or regulation of God's presence. They lived in God's presence. Now, one way to tell the story of the Bible is in terms of the divine presence. In the beginning, God creates us to be with him in this immediate unbroken presence in the garden to dwell with God. Because of the fall, we lose access to that presence. We're expelled from the garden. We no longer have access to God's uh, personal presence in the way that Adam and Eve did. But salvation through Jesus Christ is a restoration. It's how God restores us to that garden presence. And so that's one way to tell the whole story of the Bible. But I really want to just draw your attention in particular to this theme of divine presence. Because it's, a, it's such an important theme of how God is present to us in our life. And that word presence for us, in the Hebrew Bible, the word presence literally means face. Uh, when you see that word presence, it's not in our text, it's assumed. But when you, when you read it, come across in the Old Testament that word, the presence of the Lord, the Hebrew word is face. And it communicates something very important about presence, which is that presence is personal 
presence is intimate. We tend to think of presence in kind of abstract kind of ways. This is how the English language works. Um, I, I think the best we come to is we think of presence as like, in Star Wars, you have the force, right? It's like this, this presence that is there. And, uh, but the problem with the force is this, is it's not personal, right? The force in Star Wars is impersonal. You don't really have a relationship with it. And of course, God is, as creator, uh, present in, in that universal way, but this is not a personal presence. When the Bible talks about presence, it uses that, that imagery of face, because it's possible to be in God's presence. It's possible to be very close to God, and yet not experience the personal, intimate presence of God. Imagine now, uh, last time you were on an airplane, and you were sitting next to a stranger on the airplane. They're literally inches from next to you, and perhaps you make uh, small talk, you introduce yourselves, but that person is right next to you, uncomfortably close, but you don't know them. You don't have access to who they are. There's not an intimate communicative presence there, and see, so that's the same way. There's a way that, yes, God is universal, God is omnipresent, but being close to God's presence isn't necessarily experiencing a face-to-face relationship with God. And yet the deepest desire of the human heart is precisely to, to enjoy God's presence, God's face, to be in personal relationship with God. And today, so that's what I want to focus on today, is just the theme of God's presence because it's at the heart of what we're talking about in this series about the liturgical life or the life of worship. The life of worship is one in which we are oriented properly to the presence of God, or in Brother Lawrence's language, practicing the presence of God. So to do that, I want to sort of expand our understanding a little bit of presence, of God's presence. And I think the scriptures are so beautiful and brilliant in how they communicate to us, because they don't do it just in intellectual abstract categories but the scriptures give us this picture of a garden and help us to understand the way God's presence in our life works through the imagery of a garden and so I want I want I want to kind of fill out your sense of what it means to be and to dwell in God's presence by looking at how God was present to Adam and Eve in the garden and the first thing I want to get you to think about in terms of the garden is this is like when we think about the garden of Eden We often think of it as like this paradise, you know, and what makes the garden so great is like the fruit and it's warm, you can be naked, and it's just, it's like the perfect resort or paradise. But the Garden of Eden, it's it's not so much created as a place for God, for a paradise for human beings, but it's, it's a place for God's special presence. Like what makes the garden the garden is not like the, the, the foliage or the atmosphere, or the temperature, but what makes the garden special and distinct from all the rest of creation is that that's where God dwells in this special, intimate way. If you remove the presence of God from the garden, the, re- the garden just goes back to being like the rest of creation. Nothing special, nothing distinct. I think this is just really important for us as a general point of application in our life and how we think about God's presence. Because in one way or another, all of us in our lives, whether we would give it this language or not, are seeking Eden. We're all, we're all looking for some kind of paradise. All of our lives and the endeavors of our lives are sort of moving towards something like the garden. Whether it's, you know, falling in love, 
having the perfect romantic relationship, having the perfect family, having the perfect career and vocation that you love, you know, having a life of a lifestyle that makes you happy. All these things are, are in a sense, us seeking to find this, this Edenic, this paradise on earth. And, and I mean, if you just look at, you know, so much advertising, commercials, especially like um, Hotels.com and all these other Airbnb. It's like they give you this picture of this Eden, this place of just complete rest and peace that you want to go. And just buy our product and you'll have paradise, right? That's how much, so much advertising in our culture works. It's playing on this deep, primordial desire uh, for Eden. But I think our problem is, is that we think that we can recreate Eden without God. We think that we can have all the greatest joys and pleasures in life, but without God. But this is, this is a mistake. So what is it that makes Eden special? In particular, what is it that God's presence within Eden does that makes it to be a place that we want to be? Um, so there's four things I want to draw your attention to that you see that when God's, what God's presence does, and these all still relate to our life today, so there's four things, aspects of the presence of God. It brings order, it brings joy, it brings intimacy, and it brings fruitfulness. So order, that's the first thing about the presence of God is that it brings order out of chaos. Um, prior to creation, go, go back to Genesis 1, the earth is um, it's chaotic. It's, it's, it's an inhospitable place. Things can't grow there. Things can't live there. And the first thing that God does before creating in Genesis 1 is he sends his divine presence. So uh, this is what Genesis 1 says. The earth was without form and void. Remember that word tohu vavohu? That's that word. Chaos. Chaotic seas, right? The tohu vavohu. God, darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovers, begins to hover over this watery mess. And then God begins to create out of it. God's presence brings order. God's presence brings harmony, symmetry, beauty out of the chaotic mess of the tohu vabohu. <laughs> when God plants a garden, it's God planting the garden. He doesn't have human beings do it for his sake. He plants a garden for human beings, right? And the garden isn't just, the, you know, God doesn't just create the wilds. He doesn't just create the forests and the jungles. He cultivates a garden, and in that garden, human beings dwell with God. And so the garden is this place of, of, of order and beauty and desire and harmony. Um, and I think the, the, one of the just immediate application points here is this, is that when, when we practice God's presence, as Brother Lawrence recommends we do, there's a way that we... We enter, God orders our lives. He orders our hearts. He, he brings harmony and symmetry and, and, and the right coordination. Because all of our hearts in one way or another are a little bit like the formless void and darkness sometimes, where it's the tohu vavohu, but in an inner way. And when the Spirit of God comes in, the Spirit can bring order and harmony. Just like Jesus when he was on the sea and it was you know, watery and waves are going over the boat and he says, peace, be still. That's how Paul in Philippians can say, 
you know, um, there is a peace that passes all understanding. We live in a world of anxiety and fear and chaos and violence. But even in the midst of that, it is possible to have peace that passes understanding. Why? Because of God's presence, because God is near. So that's the first thing about God's presence in our life is it brings calm, order, peace. The second one is that it brings joy. The garden is a place of joy, of pleasure, of delights. It's a place that's filled with desire. It's a place of beauty. It's a place where uh, you're naked and you're unashamed. You're not even aware of it. You're not embarrassed. You can be yourself. It's a place that you don't have to work for food. You work, but your work is not for food. Your work is like play. It's a place uh, that is sensuous. And, and again, you think of all those commercials for, it's like all-inclusive resort. You come and we make the food, we give you the drinks, and there's all kinds of fun activities and there's a pool, right? I mean, that, there's, a, there's a little bit of Eden there in how we, we, uh, we think of those things. And I think what we're, again, prone to miss again and again in our lives as we relate to creation is that what makes Eden a pleasurable, joyful place is that God is there. <laughs> it's not the amenities. <laughs> it's not the taste of the fruit in itself. It's that God is there. And the psalmist reminds us again and again of this. Uh, Psalm 16, David says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 36, this is a great, great verse. Um, the psalmist is speaking of the faithful, those who, who trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. And he says this, he says, they feast on abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Now that word river of your delights literally means river of your Edens. You drink from the river of your Edens. In other words, because Eden, you know, communicates this idea of delight. God's presence is the true source of joy and pleasure in creation. And I think as sinful human beings, what we try to do is we try to pleasure and joy out of created things without God. But what makes creation truly pleasurable and joyful in the deepest way is that God is there with us. And to enjoy it to its fullest is to enjoy it in God's presence. Imagine you have the possibility to eat the best meal of your entire life, but you eat it alone. How much more enjoyable is that meal if you had all of your closest friends with you? A hundred times more enjoyable. And it's like that with God, right? The presence of God actually unlocks the true joy of being human, the true joy of creation. So that's the second piece, order, joy. The third is intimacy. God's presence is an intimate presence. It's a personal, loving presence. Uh, the garden is a place, um, I mean, it's no accident that God creates marriage in the context of the garden, right? There you have a man and a woman, naked, unashamed, brought together in perfect union. The garden is a place uh, of being known and knowing others. It's a, plain without sh a place without shame and without having to hide. And this, again, is such a powerful image of love and marriage and the draw of romance that, and in a way, every marriage, every romantic relationship is driven by this sort of deep primordial desire 
to be naked and unashamed, to be united fully, body, soul, flesh with another person, to experience this deep, deep communion and intimacy. In the Song of Songs, which is written by Solomon about his marriage um, with his bride, it's a very sensuous and a very erotic book. And one of the things that Solomon, the, 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 the poetry of that book again and again goes back to Eden. All the language in there describes marriage as like a garden. It's, it's just this place that is just filled with delights and beauty and sensuousness. There's a reason that marriage becomes the, the prototype or the category in which to think about our relationship with God. Because the kind of relationship that God desires with us is like the relationship of husband and wife. The marriage relationship is the most intense the most vulnerable, the most intimate, the most rewarding uh, experience that you can have in, a, in any human relationship. It's like nothing else. And God, in a sense, gives us this. So this is what it's like to be in relationship with me. This is what I desire. And that's what Adam and Eve had when they were in the garden, is this deep personal intimacy with God. So you have order and joy and intimacy. And then the, the final piece is, uh, the final one is this, is fruitfulness. And it really flows from intimacy and love. God's presence is a, a presence that brings about fruitfulness. Uh, you could think of God's presence as in the garden as almost like a greenhouse, right? In a greenhouse, you have, you know, mist and warmth and it's very humid and it magnifies the sun and things grow more quickly and they grow really fruitfully. And that's kind of like the presence of God. That's how God's presence works. One of the most beautiful pictures you have of this is in Ezekiel 47, where the prophet has this vision of the new heavens, the new temple. And the new temple from the side that's on the side of the mountain in Jerusalem, there's water that's flowing out of the temple. And as the temple water goes down, it hits the Dead Sea and it turns the salt water into fresh water. And everywhere that the water goes, it, it creates new life. Wherever the river goes, this is Ezekiel, every living creature that swarms and lives, for this water goes there, and that waters of the sea become fresh. Everything that the water touches becomes alive. It grows, it becomes fruitful. This is the presence of God, right? To live in God's presence, to dwell in God's presence, is to be made fruitful. It is to be fertile. And this is really the language that the New Testament, the imagery that it uses when it talks about the new creation spirit of God. The spirit of God poured out into our hearts brings new life, right? Barren souls makes fruitful. War-torn, you know, lives, he puts back together and makes alive again. So this this, this, this uh, puts the idea of practicing God's presence into a broader perspective. Because again, when we think about God's presence, sometimes we think, well, it's this holy, separated thing, which there's, a tr there's truth to that, but it seems like, well, I'm doing my spiritual thing, I'm doing my religious thing, and now I'm doing my other things. But a proper understanding of God's presence is understanding that Eden was, in a sense, the center of creation, how we are meant to experience the world. Practicing the presence of God is learning how to dwell in creation and to enjoy God at the center. I'll say that one more time. Practice of the presence of God is learning how to dwell in creation and enjoy it with God at the center. Because in Eden, we enjoyed this unbroken presence of God that 
gave us an experience of creation where God's at the center and there's order and there's joy and there's intimacy and there's fruitfulness. Problem is that we lost it, right? And so here's the second half here. Not as long. How do we lose it? How do we lose this presence? How do we break it? Through disobedience. But more specifically, uh, we failed to keep God's garden presence. It was a priestly failure on our part. Remember what I said earlier about the language uh, that when God puts the man and the woman in the garden, he puts them there to work it and to keep it. This is very important language. It's, it's priestly language. In the Old Testament, the same words are used to apply to the work of priests, right? So the, the word work is the word aphoda, which means to serve or offer, right? So it ends up being the offerings of the priests. And to keep is the word shamar, which means to guard, to keep, to protect. And so this is what priests do. But this is what Adam and Eve were meant to do in the garden as well, as to work it and to keep it. And the keeping function in particular was meant to protect the sacred space from pollution, from uncleanness, from sin. And where Adam and Eve fail is they fail to keep. They fail to keep. Um, And this is really directly um, related to um, their responsibility in relationship to the serpent, right? So the serpent shows up. Right? And you have this certain sense of this ominous sense, right? Something dangerous has showed up into this garden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And remember that when God creates the human beings, he puts them in, gives them to have dominion and authority over all of all creatures. Right? So here you have this creature that comes in, this serpent, which is sort of a mysterious figure, and he's crafty. And they begins to speak and begins, the serpent begins to question God's order and his design. And human beings listen to them. And this, <clears throat> the creature that human beings were meant to have dominion over, they end up listening to, right? And so the temptation of Adam and Eve is they listen to the creature that was beneath them rather than the creator that was above them, right? So you have this subversion, right? They don't protect they don't keep. They listen to the, to the serpent. And what ends up happening was what began as just a problem of a pest, which they had all the authority and power over they would have wanted to say, get out of this garden. They don't. And the pest that they listen to ends up costing them the garden, which is ruined. They fail as priests. But there's another, another one other layer to this idea of keeping. The word shamar also means to keep God's word. It's a word that's used, again, in terms of obedience. And God very clearly makes this connection in Genesis 2. When he gives the command to work and to keep, then God gives an immediate commandment related to the tree. He says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. So the priestly task, the priestly task of keeping required them to obey the commandment and not to eat of a tree. But again, they fail. They don't keep the command. They disobey. And because of this disobedience, they're expelled from the garden. Because of this disobedience, there is the curse. Now, we don't have time to do this today, but think about all the curses. All those curses relate to 
um, things that, in a sense, damage the presence of God, our experience of joy, intimacy, <laughs> of fruitfulness, all those things are harmed. And in part, it's because now the relationship with God and his presence is broken. And now we lose Eden and we live outside of God's unbroken presence. I think, again, the same way that Adam and Eve broke God's garden presence is the same way that we do today, which is through disobedience, through failing to be keepers of God's word, we break God's presence. I mean, what is, I mean, disobedience, what is it? I mean, it's one of those religious words that in our culture we don't really like, but disobedience is us wanting creation on our own terms. It's us wanting creation according to our own wisdom. It's us wanting creation without regard to God's character and who he is. Ultimately, it's us wanting the world without God, right? That's the essence of disobedience. It's us wanting the world without God. But God will not permit this. And I want to draw your, your attention to the very final verses of this chapter, which are somewhat mysterious but make sense in the light of how we've told this story. Um, behold, this is God speaking, this is verse 22, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what is this tree of life? The tree of life is, is the source of life. It represents God's presence. It represents eternal life. It represents all that we long for in Eden. And that's, in a way, again, we're all looking for a tree of life, something to live off of. But again, it was not meant to be experienced in a sinful way. This is an impossibility. And because of this, God has to push us out of the garden. Because if he didn't, we would destroy ourselves and we would destroy his creation. And so God exiles us from the garden, but then he puts two cherubim to keep. We, we didn't keep the garden. We didn't protect the garden. But now God has set two cherubim with flaming swords that move back and forth to cut us off from the garden to protect it. And in the life of Israel, when you, when you read those descriptions of the temple and of the heavenly throne room of God, there's, there's cherubim there. They're keepers. And it communicates to us, we can't now just simply enter into God's presence as we wish. We don't have access to the garden presence. So the question is, well, how do we regain that presence? (laughs) How do we get that presence back? This is a very long uh, answer to this story, but I want to give you one answer, which is really the final answer, and it's this, is that we regain access to God's garden presence through a different priest, through the perfect priest who was a perfect keeper, Jesus of Nazareth. He was the second Adam. He is the second Adam. And whereas the first Adam fails to be a keeper, the second Adam does not fail. Whereas the first Adam listened to the serpent in the garden, the second Adam, when he was tempted in the wilderness, did not listen to the serpent. He was the perfect keeper of God's word. And now through him, we have access to God's garden presence again which is now in heaven. Now, there's no returning to the garden in creation as it was when Adam and Eve 
began. We have to wait to the end. That's those verses in Revelation that we heard in our sacred reading. But there is a way that we can, in our daily lives, have access to God's garden presence, that intimate, joy-filled, order-bringing intimacy that we had in the garden, but it comes through the Spirit into our own lives, and it comes through the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews has a very rich account of Jesus as our high priest, and he offers us, I think, hope and perspective. The writer says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we were, and yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. Amen. Father, we give you thanks for the presence and access that we have through Jesus Christ, the perfect priest, the perfect keeper of your word. God, help us to um, orient our lives, all the different areas of our lives, through this, through your presence. In those places in our lives that lack joy, may you bring joy. In those places that lack order and that are overtaken by chaos and destruction, may you bring the harmony and the order of your spirit. In those places that are lonely and barren and frustrated, may you bring your personal love and fruitfulness. We give you thanks that you meet us in this time in a special way as we worship and as we come to your table. Continue to be with us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.